Humanity has spent its entire history from Adam to today living under the curse of sin. Tim just brought us the, the details of that curse, the details of what happened when sin was first introduced into this world and the separation and the weight that came with it. As many of you know, we're just coming out of Nahum, and Nahum was a perfect example of the weight and of the darkness of, that sin brings. And perhaps you thought that we would be moving right away into this nice, light-hearted Christmas series, and we will get to the light-hearted moments, the moments of sheer joy and exhilaration that we feel around Christmas. But before we can really see and appreciate that, we must wrestle with the state of our world. We must wrestle with our state prior to Christ. I mean, the nation of Israel plays out the same drama as all of human history, a drama of being utterly lost without a Savior. A drama of unfaithfulness to God, of total inability to save oneself. And this morning, to prepare us for the incredible turnabout that comes in the Incarnation, I hope that you will come with me this morning to Psalm chapter 22. This psalm is one of the most often quoted and alluded to psalms in the New Testament particularly throughout the Gospels. And the reason is, is because it has so many elements that point towards Christ. So with our eyes and our hearts turned towards Christ, I would ask that you would pray with me, and then we will come to the Scriptures in Psalm 22. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, as we spend time in your Word, as we take the time to allow it to speak to us, We just ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would be causing it to impact our hearts. That you would speak clearly through your word. That we would recognize that this is your word, your holy scriptures that speak to us. That we might know that this is God himself speaking to his people. Lord, may this not be a dead book to us, but that it might be alive in our hearts and our minds and cause us to look at the way we live and the ways that we interact with ourselves and one another, and that you might cause us to live differently because of what we see in your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. 
To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It's pretty clear why this psalm has become so closely tied to the life and particularly to the death of Christ. (coughs) I mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me make mouths at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Fifteen times or more this psalm is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. The King David is here used as a prophet of the coming suffering of Christ, the Messiah. What drew me to this psalm this morning as we come down to Christmas, one week's time, 
it wasn't just the allusions to the crucifixion. For me, it's about this tone of lament, this desperation and lostness in David's voice as he writes this psalm. As we read this, I hope you can hear David's incredible sorrow, particularly in that first section up to verse 21, the lament section of the psalm, before David moves into kind of a tone of thanksgiving. He is without hope. He has hope, but there is something in him that says, this seems so hopeless. This psalm is undoubtedly intended by God to be a messianic psalm pointing towards Christ. We know that Scripture interprets itself, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, it clarifies this for us. It quotes this psalm saying, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is speaking of Christ. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is meant to be a messianic prophecy. We have no instance that we know of in King David's life where this psalm very obviously describes an execution. Something is happening, and we have no record of anything that King David would have experienced that would have matched up with this. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 29, Luke says of Psalm 16, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. And here in Psalm 22, I believe David is once again acting as a prophet, speaking of what he foresaw. At this time, not the resurrection of Christ, but instead the crucifixion. So why are we in a prophetic psalm of the crucifixion now with Christmas Day just one week off? Why did Tim read this morning of the curse that attended mankind's fall in the garden. As we spent time in Nahum, one of the things that Nahum most affected in my heart, and I hope it bled through into yours as well, is how desperately we need to understand the nature of what we have been saved from in order to appreciate what we receive instead. The wrath of God poured out on Nineveh does wonders to help us understand the wrath of God stored up for the sons of disobedience, as Paul describes those who are lost without Christ. But for all of the visceral imagery in Nahum, all of the incredibly wicked deeds that are described, and all of the judgment that is poured out on Nineveh, that is not the pinnacle of God's wrath in Scripture. That is not the pinnacle of God's judgment. The very height of God's wrath occurs in the very moment where our psalmist starts his prophecy. We hear this horrible things happening to Nineveh. 
of utter destruction and death, and it's, it's horrible. And yet this moment where God's wrath shows truest and is most terrible is that moment where the sinless, only begotten Son of God, the Messiah, is raised on a Roman cross, and he cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never in history has there been such an incredibly awful moment. Even at the fall of mankind, there's a sense where Adam and Eve and their offspring are simply receiving what they are due for their own sin. But at this cross at Calvary, we witness the first truly innocent death in all of history. Where one unstained by even a sinful nature is executed. And there's a real sense where the cross becomes the culmination of mankind's sinful history from creation onward. We can see that throughout Scripture and even in our own view and what we see, that mankind tends to become more and more wicked. God creates mankind, mankind sins, and the fall begins, and from there it gets worse and worse and worse until we come to Noah. And God is ready to just wipe all mankind and start fresh, and he chooses to save a remnant. He saves Noah and his family, and then the process starts again. People grow in wickedness until humanity does very truly hit rock bottom. where we look at the state of mankind and everything seems truly lost. Where the one who seemed to be God's chosen Messiah, the one sinless man, is murdered by his own people and by their wicked rulers. At this moment, humanity had sunk the lowest it could possibly sink. And yet, this provides us a great segue from Nahum and the judgment therein into Christmas. We're going to look upon the life of Christ that culminates in his substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross. And this is the culminating chapter of God's righteous judgment on his people. Most of us from our school days in English class are familiar with that old chart of story development. In the beginning, you kind of have that exposition, the introduction of whatever the primary conflict is. And in Scripture, that would roughly equate to the creation narrative and the fall. That is the beginning of the, the problem. And from there, you have the rising action as things build. And that conflict grows and grows until you hit the climax of the story, the main thrust of the story. And in that frame, we have the entire 
human history between the fall and Christ, and it culminates in the crucifixion and glorification of our Lord. And finally, that story comes to a close. There's that falling action and the resolution where, I mean, many of the New Testament writers refer to what we live in now as the final days, the last days. The reality is that at the crucifixion of Christ, the, the corner has been turned. The primary conflict is, in a sense, resolved when God's chosen people are saved in Christ, but the details have yet to be fully fleshed out. We are not yet glorified. Christ reigns, but we do not yet see his reign imposed here on earth. The resolution of good and evil, we are told, will come when Christ returns, and all wickedness and death will be swept away for eternity. I was never one much for English class, but I was always a big fan of reading, particularly fictional stories, and to see how God has woven the story of history, and to see this moment that King David prophesies as the absolute climax of the story. As we approach our Christmas services next Saturday and Sunday, I want us to remember that the joy of Christmas, the loves and the gifts and the celebrations, they have all come at great cost. We are told that without the crucifixion and the resurrection, well, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Christmas holds no joy. There is no joy in the incarnation of Christ without all of the rest of the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the resurrection, and the glorification of our Lord. So even in the midst of our celebration of the Incarnation at Christmas time, the Incarnation seems to be the, the proverbial first tangible step of God's rescue of His people. We know He's been putting this in motion from the very moment that mankind has fallen. He even had, had it planned from before then. But as Christ comes to the earth, what we celebrate at Christmas, it seems to be All right, God's kicked it into high gear here. Even as we celebrate that, I want us to steep for a moment in the loss and the agony and the hopelessness of the first half of our passage this morning. I'm going to read that first half again, and I want you to, again, just even close your eyes and just hear from David's perspective, just the absolute and utter hopelessness. And recognizing that our whole history as mankind has been mired in this hopelessness, this 
praying for someday a Messiah, and then the Messiah finally shows up, and here he is murdered. I'm going to read our passage again and just feel David's heart in this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for the trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of all the wild oxen. It's so hard to, to read those, those words and not be affected. Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ was born of flesh and blood and that he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We too were lost without Christ. We too deserve all of the wrath and punishment that God could muster against us because we are naturally and intentionally his enemies before Christ. We are born with hearts set against him. And given the chance, we would spend our entire life building a case for our own damnation. Apart from Christ, we would cry out at the end of our lives, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God would simply have to point to the fruits of our lives he would point to the wickedness of our hearts and the transgressions that we have made against his perfect law and he would rightly condemn us to hell. And that is where we stand without Christ. And in that moment, 
where Christ is crucified and all seems darkest. It seems like Satan has finally won. In a world that sees life as this battle between good and evil that kind of goes back and forth and we never know who's going to win, well, at this moment, evil has won. Or so it seems. The psalmist's message doesn't end there. That is not the end of Psalm 22. And so too, God's people's end is not to be condemned and forsaken. Jesus, the Christ, was not just crucified. He was crucified, died, and was buried, and he was raised again on the third day, and he was glorified. That he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Our psalmist's transition to thanksgiving starts with verse 22, which was quoted in Hebrews. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow down before all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Don't miss this. We are the people yet unborn. We are the one. Posterity has served Christ It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation to us. We would hear that. Those who go before us shall come and serve him and proclaim his righteousness to us. God has preserved his church. He has preserved his word. And in his word and through his church, we hear of the righteousness of Christ. We hear of the Lord Jesus and what he has done. We are told that he has done it. And that is the joy that we find at Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas carols, and there are some out there that are the typical commercial frivolous Christmas carols that I'd be as happy to not hear as anything else. But then there are ones that recognize what a beautiful thing it is to glory in Christmas. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. 
Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. The lordship of Christ, God the Son, was never in question. He has always been and always will be the Lord of all creation. That has never changed. But when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, He identified Himself with His people. When we spent our time in Hebrews, there is this confusing thing where it talked about Christ being made perfect, about how He became the perfect Savior. And it was something that we had to wrestle with. And ultimately, it comes to He was made the perfect Savior for us because if He had not become flesh, if He had not become incarnated, He couldn't save us. The justice of our Lord could not have been maintained pouring out His wrath upon someone that is utterly different than us. And yet our Savior became fully man. He subjected Himself to all of the same weaknesses and trials that we experience. The one born the King of Angels came and was born in lowly estate in a manger, went through all of the frustration and awkwardness of growing up and becoming a man, living under the authority of parents, experiencing the pains of life. He was a carpenter's son. He hit his thumb with a hammer more than once. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and identified himself with his people and became the perfect Savior for his people. Those who had been given eyes to see were now able to see their Messiah, to see their Savior literally in the flesh standing before him. In the incarnation of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, we see God actively fulfilling what we see in verse 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. I mean, over and over again throughout the history of Israel, we have this pattern where the people wander away from God, do their own thing, and get themselves into all sorts of trouble. And when they finally hit the wall, they finally go to their knees and go, God, we can't get out of this. We're stuck. This person has come and afflicted us. These people are attacking us. God, there's nothing we can do. Please save us. I love the history of the judges for that because you can see this constant pattern of they mess up, they get themselves in hot water, and then God sends a judge to come and save his people from whatever situation, whatever mess they got themselves into, and then the process starts back over again and over and over and over and over and over all throughout human history until God sends his only begotten son. And then that cycle stops. We continue to get ourselves in trouble. 
we continue to do dumb things that get us into hot water. We continue to disobey God and then wonder why we end up where we do. But we don't have to look around and say, God, are you going to send someone to save me? We simply have to come back to the Scriptures and remember that He has. We are reminded by the Holy Spirit and we come back to our Savior. In the Incarnation, we are given the opportunity to know and bow down before the King. The King of earth, the King of angels, and King of His people. So this morning, I hope that we are each able to praise the Lord that He has seen fit to save us, to break that cycle of hopelessness and just constantly looking for someone, anyone that God might send to relieve us of our affliction. I hope that all of His congregation, both here and those joining with us online, and that all of His people around the world would celebrate the incarnation of Christ. What a beautiful thing it is that He would send His only begotten Son. But as we do so, I hope that we do not do so and forget what that set in motion, particularly for Christ. I hope that we would remember that for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. As we remember the many blessings of Christmas, the joy of the incarnation, the promise of salvation, the gift of life given to God's people, the second Adam that comes to rectify the failures of the first, may it all be sweetened in our hearts by an intentional acknowledgement of the bitter cup that Christ would drink on our behalf. It's easy to get wrapped up in all of the joy of Christmas and the image of this newborn Savior lying in a manger. And to do so, kind of putting out of our minds, okay, we have Easter coming up in three months or so, four months, I guess. We can get to that then. But the sweetness of Christmas the joy that we have at Christmas requires that other part. One goes with the other. And if we want to have true joy at Christmas, if we really want to see what Christmas is about, why it means something that we can gather together with family and celebrate and give gifts, the gifts that we give, the little gifts we give back and forth, those gifts point to the gift that was given when He came to this little manger in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East. But it also points to the gift that was given when he went to the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of that is wrapped up in there and all of that is required if we are going to rightly enjoy and not just enjoy but worship in the Christmas season. And I hope that each of us goes from here this morning with the words of verses 30 and 31 ringing in our ears and driving our hearts through the next week or so. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. I've had people ask why we would have service on Christmas Day. It's so much work to get everyone up and out and into the church. Both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, it's a difficult thing. The children are wanting to get to their gifts, all of that kind of thing. Because posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. When my kids go, why can't I open my presents yet? Because we are going to church and we are worshiping God for what he has done. That is more important than all of this. And that is why all of this even has something worth doing. I can give my kids presents any day. I can give my kids presents right now. We had a little mini gift-giving thing last night with Auntie Faith because Auntie Faith is going out to visit family. But on Christmas Day, where it's the big event, the big show, when we come to give presents and celebrate with our family, we get to proclaim his righteousness to a people that are just born, that are born, and to set a pattern for those yet unborn. I want my kids to grow up and know what the meaning of Christmas is, know why it's worth worshiping God on Christmas. And what message am I sending to say, I don't really want to go to church on Sunday morning because it's also Christmas morning and we have other things going on. We come on Christmas Eve and we come on Christmas Day because we have the opportunity, not the obligation, the opportunity to worship God on both. And I am so excited to get to do that with my church family. And that doesn't mean it won't be difficult. It doesn't mean there won't be hiccups and that I won't hear much weeping and gnashing of teeth from my little ones that they have to stay up late, then get up early. It's not going to always be fun. But it was not fun for our Savior to leave all of the glory of heaven, all of the glory of living in eternity with his Father and come to earth and be born a man, a man with all of the weakness and difficulty and pain that comes along with being a man. It was not fun for him to come and to die a sinner's death on the cross. But he did so because it was worth it. He did so for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. And I hope that as we celebrate Christmas, that we would celebrate Christmas with hearts of worship that would act for the glory of the Father, worshiping our Savior, Christ the Son, and that we would do so for the good of his people, that as we gather to worship, that we would encourage and strengthen one another with the incredible joy of Christmas. And for some, Christmas is not a particularly joyful time. For some, Christmas is going to be hard beyond all reason. 
For some, Christmas is lonely. There are many who have no one. They are solo. There's many different reasons for that. Maybe it's loss and death. Maybe it's empty nester syndrome where kids have moved away. And what an encouragement it is on Christmas Day where otherwise they might be alone at home to be able to come and worship together with them, that they could come and worship with a family truer than any blood family. I am so excited that we get to worship together this Christmas. And I hope that as we go from here, that our hearts of worship and that the sweetness of our worship would be just absolutely grown by acknowledging the bitter cup that Christ drank on our behalf. So as we close, why don't we pray, and then I will bring our our benediction from Luke chapter 2. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us see the command here in verses 30 and 31, that we would serve you, that we would tell of what you have done to all generations, that we would proclaim your righteousness to everyone that we meet, that all might know what you have done that all might know the joy that was set in motion at Christmas, at the Incarnation. And that we see the beginnings of the fullness of at the crucifixion and the glorification. And that we look forward to the fullness of at the second coming. Lord, you have done great things. And it is beyond our imagining what great things you yet have in store for your people as we look forward to the return of your son, Jesus. What must it have been like for those who got to worship when he was standing before them? What must it have been like for the disciples who were able to meet the glorified Christ and feel the holes in his hands and his feet? Lord, we thank you that you have given us such an amazing account of what you have done in the scriptures and that you have given us a hope of a future that goes so far beyond anything we could ask or imagine. And Lord, may we, your people, be spurred to action this Christmas, that we would not become inward-focused at family gatherings and presents as enjoyable as all those things are, but that we would turn our eyes and our hearts and our focus outwards to those who do not yet know you, who need to be shown your love, even those who know you but are struggling and in pain this Christmas. May your body be acting and moving this Christmas. 
Lord, by your Holy Spirit, act upon our hearts. May the absolute and utter horror of what was done upon Calvary's cross be impressed upon us. What wasn't inflicted upon Christ, but that Christ willingly took upon himself that he might save his people from their sins. And may that sweeten the celebration. May that spur our worship. For we know that you are God and that you are good and you have shown yourself to be good and faithful to your people far more than we could ever even begin to thank you for. Lord God, you are good and we thank you for that. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to be born as a man, to become the perfect Savior, the perfect sacrifice that was needed to stand in our place to take away all of the sins of those who you would give to him. Oh God, we are so blessed. We thank you and we ask that you would take us from here ready to proclaim that to all who would hear. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2. The message to the shepherds from the angel. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Praise God. God bless you. You're dismissed, and Merry Christmas.